Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 46, the book of Revelation, chapters 20 and 21. Well, as we get started and continue with Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20, here's where we stand. Time still exists. We have not yet entered eternity. The battle of Armageddon is over. Messiah Yeshua has returned victorious and his thousand year reign has begun. The only living people on earth at this moment are believers. The people who are populating the earth all throughout the millennium consist of re-embodied souls of the righteous dead who now inhabit glorified bodies that will never die. They're joined by regular humans who live out a normal lifespan just as we currently do and then pass away. And the regular humans will have offspring of their own. Their offspring will have offspring and so on. And this part of Earth's population will proceed and it will increase just as it happens today, generation after generation, for ten centuries. This means that all during the millennium the Earth's population will experience an accelerating rise. Satan and all of his henchmen and followers are now captives in the abyss. This means mankind has no external evil influence. However, the part of the population of regular human beings that live and die will continue on with evil inclinations as part of their nature. And this unfortunate reality shows up especially at the end of the 1,000 years. Now make no mistake, the first several years of the Millennial Kingdom will be a worldwide environmental cleanup campaign. The earth will be terribly scarred from the earthquakes and the wars, God's supernatural judgments on the land, the air and the oceans that occurred in the last days and the corpses of the innumerable dead will be scattered about the planet. Scavenger birds and, and other carrion eating animals will do their part. But humanity will also have to pitch in to bury the millions and millions of war dead. The earth will still be divided up into nations, but the king of the world, Yeshua, will be ruling over it all from Jerusalem. Let's reread the last paragraph of Revelation chapter 20. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that'll be page 1553. 1553. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to start reading at verse 11. 
Next I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it and earth and heaven fled from his presence. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing in front of the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged from what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Sheol gave up the dead in them. And they were judged, each according to what he had done. Then death and Sheol were hurled into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was hurled into the lake of fire. Now, a lot's been written about the great white throne judgment. What that means, exactly when it happens, depends on the end times doctrines of whatever denomination one belongs to. Now, rather than present you with a variety of interpretations today, I'm only going to give you mine. The great white throne is speaking of God's heavenly throne. There's much reasonable debate over whether this is referring to the throne of God the Father or that of God the Son. Probably the most popular choice within modern evangelical Christianity is the belief that this is referring to Christ's throne. I believe this is referring to the ultimate throne of God the Father for some reasons that are going to shortly become apparent. To begin with, the terms the one and the ancient one are names used in the Old Testament to refer to, refer to the Father. The color white, as we regularly see in the Bible, refers to purity and it means the same thing here when referring to the great throne. Throughout Revelation, the one who is seated on the throne is always God the Father. When God the Son is pictured, it's always as standing before Him. Revelation 5.1 Next I saw in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven on earth, under the earth was able to open the scroll or look inside of it and I cried and I cried because no one was found to open the scroll or look inside of it and one of the elders said to me don't cry look the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has won the right to open the scroll and its seven seals Revelation 19 4 and 5 the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshipped God sitting on the throne and said, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice went out from the throne saying, Praise our God, all of you servants, you who fear him, great and small. And yet, yet, from the Apostle John himself in his gospel account, we read this, 
In John 5, 19-29, Therefore Yeshua said this to them, Yes, indeed, I tell you that the Son cannot do anything on His own, only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does too. For the Father loves the Son, and He shows Him everything He does. And He will show Him even greater things than these, so that you will be amazed. Just as the Father raises the dead and makes them alive, so too the Son makes alive anyone He wants. The Father does not judge anyone, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Whoever fails to honor the Son is not honoring the Father who sent Him. Yes, indeed, I tell you that whoever hears what I am saying and trusts the One who sent Me, He has eternal life. That is, he will not come up for judgment, but is already crossed over from death to life. Yes, indeed, I tell you, there is coming a time, in fact, it's already here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who listen will come to life. For just as the Father has life in Himself, so He has given the Son life to have in Himself. Also, He has given Him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man don't be surprised at this because the time is coming when all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment the truth is that in some ways what John has to say here kind of muddies the waters of what he reports in Revelation 20 about the occupier of the white throne. And yet the real issue is not that John is contradicting himself. It is that the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is so unified, so echad, that while they represent different attributes of the same God, it in some ways comes close to what we might even want to call a division of labor. That is the son, he says from his own mouth, he cannot decide or do on his own. But only what his father decides and does. So the son is more or less the divine agent that brings about the will of the Father even in creation. John 1.1 Most of you know it by heart. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things came to be through Him, and without Him, nothing had been had being. In my opinion, there really is no point to debating whether the one sitting on the throne is the Father, as I think it is, or the Son, because it really can rightly be said that God and Yeshua are undertaking the task of executing judgment together. Now I deal with this verse by envisioning, as with all of Revelation, the Father is the one who's actually sitting on the throne, but with Yeshua in his presence. And while the Father is seated in the throne, seated on the throne, that in no way prohibits the Son from participating in the judgment process. I mean, that is, the Son doesn't have to sit on the throne in order to judge. 
Now the next sentence is somewhat vexing. Because it says that John saw earth and heaven fleeing from God's presence and no place was found for them. Them meaning earth and heaven. And in looking around at the opinions of of, of various Bible scholars, I don't find an interpretation that varies greatly from this rather popular one. It is that on account of God being so pure, earth and heaven can't be near him now, so God orders that they get away from him. Now, I find this problematic. Because if this is referring to heaven as the place where God lives, heaven certainly can't be impure. And if it's referring to heaven in the sense of the heavens, the universe, then where do the earth and the universe flee in order to stay clear of God? Rather, I see this statement as a preference to what we're going to read beginning in chapter 21, the story of the new earth and new heavens. Further, I see heaven in this context as referring to the universe, not the place where God resides. We've discussed on numerous occasions the ancient belief in the structure of the earth and the cosmos. And the term heaven was used in those days to describe two different areas. The term heaven, heavens, and even midheaven are somewhat interchangeable. And they refer to the sun, the moon, and the stars where they reside. It's what we call the universe. But the ancients also thought this same region was where the clouds floated and the birds flew. Only above that was the region of divine heaven where God lived. So biblically, heaven was a rather broad term that described pretty much everything that was above the heads of humans and not directly attached to earth. Now, God's goal since the fall of mankind has been to redeem, to restore, to perfect His creation that was corrupted with sin. While the earth and the physical universe can be legitimately seen as corrupt, heaven of the spiritual sphere certainly is not corrupt, and it needs no redeeming, and it needs no restoration. So John's comment about his vision of earth and heaven fleeing God's presence is kind of a poetic, cultural, and non-scientific way of describing the physical universe disappearing, or perhaps even returning to its original state of nothingness prior to the creation. So from John's perspective, if the earth and the universe flee from God, all that remains is God. Now for those among you with a science or interest or a science background, think of this in terms of the origin of the universe, what science today sometimes calls the Big Bang. That is, Science has observed and calculated 
that the entire universe originated from one tiny identifiable point. All the elements that are used to create every material thing that exists developed over time but originated from this one single point. How that tiny point came into existence they cannot answer because science has no means or method to answer those sorts of questions. And what came before it they cannot answer for the same reason. And just as mysteriously why this tiny point suddenly expanded and exploded also they cannot answer. Yet science nearly universally claims that all matter and energy that exists yesterday, today, and will exist in our future originally came from this tiny point. Frankly, there's little reason to dispute that theory and every reason to accept it if for no other reason than because it's anything but the conclusion that scientists wanted to reach. I mean, after all, if all matter and energy can be traced to a minuscule single point from long ago, then it leads to one overriding conundrum, having to explain who or what put it there. As God worshippers and Bible believers, we know that before anything else existed, God was. And it was He who created this tiny point. It was He who brought the universe into existence from this tiny point in whatever way He did it. Now where I'm heading is that perhaps what's happening in verse 11 is the reversal of that original creation process in order for there to be a new creation to restore or replace the former one. Whereas up to now the universe is continuing to expand at what seems to be an increasing rate, what we are reading about here in Revelation may well be the collapsing of the universe back into that single point so that it can be reformed and remade. It's only that John frames it by saying that the heaven, the earth and the heavens, the cosmos, flee from God. Everything is suddenly being reduced from the vast universe as we know it today, compressed back down to the tiniest particles and most dense form of energy as it was in the beginning. And then later, at the start of chapter 21, it's all put back together very differently from the universe that was before. Think of it like getting a box of Legos. Making something interesting out of them, then taking it all apart, put the pieces back into the original box, later the box is reopened, something entirely different gets constructed. And yet, 
the basic building blocks remain the same. Well, next we read that the dead were resurrected. The collapse of the universe and this resurrection of the dead are occurring at the end of the millennial kingdom. Since this is happening after that thousand year period, it is referring to what was promised back in verse 5. There it says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. This is the second resurrection. It consists of two groups of departed souls. First, those believers who were those regular human beings that lived and died after a normal lifespan during the millennial kingdom. Second of all, all the unrighteous dead who have ever lived at any time in history, including during the millennium. Every one of these are stood in front of God's throne and judgment is pronounced upon them. Romans 14, 10 and 11. You then, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For all of us will stand before God's judgment seat, since it is written in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. As I live, says says Adonai, every knee will bend before me, every tongue will publicly acknowledge God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the Messiah's court of judgment, where everybody will receive the good or bad consequences of what he did while he was still in the body. So I want to be clear. At the inauguration of the the millennial kingdom, only the righteous believers in Christ were brought back to life. But now, at the end of the millennium, all who had not been brought back to life in the first resurrection, the evil and the righteous, are raised. And they're set before God. Now, interestingly... We're told that not one but two different books are being used in this judgment process. Now, the books are figurative, of course. These things exist in in, in the spiritual, not the physical sphere. One of the books is called the Book of Life, where the names of all the people who were predetermined to live with God eternally are recorded. The other book records the deeds of every human who has ever lived, righteous or unrighteous. Verse 12 is crystal clear. The raised dead will be judged based on what was recorded in these two books and what they had done when they were alive, their deeds, whether evil or good, play a significant role in their eternal futures. Before we go any further, I want to speak about something that I think has been so terribly misconstrued, if not downright taught in error in modern Christianity. Our deeds do matter to God. Our works 
do matter to God. Our deeds and our works, therefore, do have an eternal consequence. It's so very distressing to me that a common refrain among too many modern believers is that once they receive Christ, their deeds and works not only don't matter any longer, to make a conscious attempt to do good deeds and works or any attempt to avoid bad deeds and works amounts to legalism. And this is a bad thing. This is decidedly not scriptural. Now while our good deeds are not the key to our salvation, they are the expected response to our salvation. No believer is exempt of the obligation of performing good works before God. One biblical term used to symbolize the expected response to our salvation is fruit or good fruit. Fruit or good fruit means only one thing. Our works and our deeds. Matthew 7, 17-20 Likewise, every healthy tree produces good fruit. But a poor tree produces bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit. Or a poor tree, good fruit. Any tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down, it's thrown into the fire. So, you will recognize them by their fruit. So here in Revelation, we find that there is a heavenly book that is, has recorded every deed, every deed, the fruit of our lives that we have ever done, both good and bad. Thus believers will find their names recorded in both books. Non-believers will only be recorded in one book. Believers will be listed in the book of life, but folks are also going to be listed in the book of deeds. Non-believers will not be present in the book of life, only recorded in the book of deeds. Thus, just as Christ said in his Sermon on the Mount, believers are going to be divided up into some kind of a hierarchy based upon our deeds. But what's going to be the standard for what is a good deed versus a bad deed? Clearly, there must be a universal standard that is equally applied to all humans or it just wouldn't be just. I wonder what that standard might be. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Probably ought to all say it in unison. Don't think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a ute or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there will be some kind of a societal hierarchy established 
with the least at one end and the great at the other. And as Yeshua says, the Torah, the law of Moses, that will be the standard. Now verse 12 hints a couple of fascinating possibilities. It's already established that while believers are fully forgiven for our sins and our bad deeds, and that while we will have a wonderful eternal life with God, there will also be a hierarchy of eternal society based on our behavior and our level of obedience to God's standard when we were alive. But what about the non-believers? Do their deeds in life matter at all at this point? This verse says they too will be judged according to what they had done. I think we've all known some truly kind, generous, loving people who are agnostic or perhaps atheist or perhaps even just some had some ill-defined belief in the existence of God but never placed their trust in Christ. And says, verse 15 says that anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be placed into the lake of fire then no matter how nice and wonderful these non-believers are or were, hell is their future. And yet, the implication here is that their deeds do seem to play some role in their eternity, even if it's in hell. In other words, that loving, kind, generous, agnostic neighbor perhaps doesn't get treated quite the same as Adolf Hitler. I don't want to press this too far because this might be reading too much into what's being said so I'm only offering this as a suggestion yet it's hard to see this scriptural statement in another light this much is certain no matter how wonderful or horrific the lives and deeds of a non-believer were the lake of fire is going to be their final destination. Perhaps it's only that their experiences there will be somewhat different based on their earthly deeds. That seems to be the gist of what we're being told. Now verse 13 explains that the sea gave up its dead. And so did death and Sheol. Now, since Sheol is a Hebrew word among English Bibles, we're only going to find that translation in the complete Jewish Bible. All other English versions will say the word hell or Hades. So a more typical English Bible version says that the sea, death, and hell will give up their dead. Hell is an English word that translates the Greek word Hades that we find here. See, what we need to understand, though, is that in the Greek language, the word used to speak about the underworld of the dead is Hades. However, the concept, that Greek concept of Hades, 
as a, this elaborate underworld of the dead. That doesn't exist in Hebrew thought. Certainly could not have been what the Jew John had in mind. What John meant is best expressed by our complete Jewish Bible when it uses the word Sheol. Now Sheol simply means the grave. It does not extend to including some kind of mythical underworld. Although some amount of ancestor worship was included in Old Testament times among the Hebrews. And since standard Hebrew burial practice is to be buried in the earth, then that is integral to the concept of Sheol. That is, Sheol is a grave dug into the earth's soil and a corpse is placed into it. The Hebrews knew nothing of burial at sea. For them, it's an oxymoron to be to, to, to speak of being buried in water. Certainly a Jew might drown in the sea and his body never recovered. But where he rested then was not Sheol. Because for it to be Sheol, the person's final resting place had to be in soil, on the earth's surface, a grave, just as we think of it. Therefore, this matter now of the sea giving up its dead is not some type of yet another resurrection. It's all part of the second one. It's merely parallel to it, another aspect of it. And it is addressing a situation that many Hebrews would have been concerned about. What happens in the resurrection for those lost at sea? But now, what does it mean for death? to give up its dead. That's a kind of curious expression. See, the Greek word used here for death is thanatos. And it speaks to the miserable state of the dead as opposed to it being a place of the dead or the dead person. Death was very mysterious to these ancient people and to the Hebrews as well. So it is that the intent of speaking of the de of death giving up its dead in addition to the sea and the grave giving up their dead is to say that every possible place a dead person might be and every possible state of death a human body might assume known and unknown to humanity all that's being included there are no exceptions. Nobody's being overlooked for any reason. If a human being ever lived, as of the great white throne judgment, they are made alive. Standing before God for his verdict about their eternal futures. Well, next in verse 14, death and Sheol are tossed into the lake of fire. Once again, we find the Greek word Thanatos being translated as death. Hades being correctly translated, at least in our complete Jewish Bibles, as Sheol. 
So the idea is death as referring to this miserable state of the dead, as well as the grave, the actual place of where the dead are buried, are both done away with and held eternally captive with the devil and all other non-believers in the lake of fire. Quite simply, this means that as of the end of the millennial kingdom period, death and all that it encompasses no longer exists. Only life. Those raised from the dead, from the dead judged unworthy of eternal life with God are condemned then to what the Bible calls the second death. The first was their physical death. Now they're going to experience spiritual death. All essence of them will exist only in the lake of fire, which seems to be a spiritual place that is sequestered apart from all other existence in any realm or, or dimension. Now their existence, frighteningly, will be one that is fully conscious of their predicament. Imagine that. Well, let's move on to the part of the book that I've really been longing to get into. Revelation chapter 21. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read that chapter right now. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1553. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no longer there. Also I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, See, God Shekinah with mankind and he will live with them and they will be his people and he himself, God with them, will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain because the old order has passed away. Then the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. Also he said, Write, these words are true and trustworthy. And he said to me, It's done. I am the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. To anyone who is thirsty, I myself will give water free of charge from the fountain of life. He who wins the victory will receive these things and I will be his God. He will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the untrustworthy, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those involved with the occult and with drugs, idol worshippers, all liars. Their destiny is the lake burning with fire and sulfur, the second death. One of the angels having the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues approached me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he carried me off in spirit to the top of a great high mountain and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It had the Shekinah of God so that its brilliance was like that of a priceless jewel, like a crystal clear diamond. 
It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates were twelve angels, and inscribed on the gates were the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates to the east, three gates to the north, three gates to the south, three gates to the west, and the wall of the city was built on twelve foundation stones. And on these were the twelve names of the twelve emissaries of the Lamb. The angel speaking with me had a gold measuring rod with which to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square, its length equal to its width. And with his rod he measured the city at 1,500 miles, with length, width, and height the same. He measured its wall at 216 feet by human standards of measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of diamond in the city of pure gold resembling pure glass. The foundations of the city wall were decorated with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation stone was diamond, the second sapphire, the, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh turquoise, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls with each gate made of a single pearl. The city's main street was pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city. For Adonai, God of heaven's armies, is its temple, as is the Lamb. The city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, because God's Shekinah gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Its gates will never close. They stay open all day because night will not exist there. And the honor and the splendor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure may enter it, nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only ones who may enter are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Before we get into studying my favorite part of Revelation, we need to address an important matter. What happened to this event spoken of in chapter 20, verse 3? That says that at the end of the thousand years, Satan has to be released for a little while. The reason for his being locked up was so he could not deceive the nations during that thousand year period. The question remains, why would God set him free and not just immediately throw Satan into the lake of fire getting rid of him once and for all? Well, we're not told. So to gain insight on what God's purpose might be, it is generally best to seek out prior biblical pattern. Therefore, I believe the reason that God is going to release Satan is to use him to expose the wicked hearts of a sizable number of people living on earth at the end of the millennium. As I've stated before, 
the millennium is not paradise. The earth's population is going to be large at the end of the millennium. And even with Christ still ruling, ageless, untiring, from his capital in Jerusalem, many people are going to forget their past. Recall the story of life in Egypt for the Israelites. When they arrived, Joseph was in power. And so life was good and it was prosperous for his father Jacob's rapidly expanding family. And for at least a century after Joseph's death, the Israelites continued to be an accepted, if not favored, people in Egypt. But then we're told that in time the people of Egypt forgot about Joseph, how he saved Egypt from famine, and all the promises that had been made to the Israelites, and they turned against them, making them into slaves. At the end of the millennium, after ten centuries of what will be uninterrupted, stability, peace, and moral living on this planet, the time will come that the regular human people whose numbers are now vast are going to forget the past. They're going to become complacent. They're going to become restless. They're going to desire to break out from under this iron rod rule of Yeshua who reigns perfectly and so he tolerates no deviance from the law of Moses. The release of Satan from the abyss will, I speculate, galvanize support for a rebellion among the nations. But it will no doubt follow the pattern of Armageddon and it will be put down quickly. The rebels will have laid bare their wicked hearts. God will instantly deal with them. And once again, the earth is purged of wickedness and all that will remain are righteous believers. Satan, the father of sin and evil, will be cast into the lake of fire forever. And this is all in preparation for what comes next. The new earth and the new heavens. And this is what we'll begin to examine next time.